Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Kenton Chan, for those of you who don't know me. Um, I am one of the elders here at Arise Church Denver. I'm so honored and thankful to be able to spend um, this morning in the Word of God with you all. So if you've got a Bible, um, go ahead and grab that. Uh, maybe you've got it on your smartphone, but I'm going to be testing your Bible navigation skills this morning. Um, but don't worry if you have a little trouble keeping up. We'll have everything up on the screen as well. Um, so, as many of you know, um, my wife Erin and I, and now with our um, daughter Judah, have felt called to um, move abroad as witnesses for Jesus for several years now. And for the last two years, we've been taking very specific steps in order to move to Bolivia. On November 2nd of last year, um, I actually quit my job and left my company of more than a decade in order to focus full-time on doing just that. In the intervening three months since then, uh, we believe that God has opened up an amazing door and given us an incredible opportunity to move abroad um, by August of this year. But it's to another country in North Africa. And although we felt like our hearts were in Bolivia with the friends and the people that we met when we visited there, uh, back in 2019, um, we just really believe that we need to trust God in this new direction in which he's leading us. And uh, if you're here with us in person today, um, there's more information about that on the handout that was on your chairs uh, when you arrived this morning. If you're joining us online um, this morning or later in the week and you'd like to learn more about that, um, please reach out to me or Aaron directly or Pastor Matt and Pastor Sawyer can also get you in touch with us. Um, but this country to which we are moving um, actually has a national religion, which 90% of the population follows. And it's not Christianity. Um, although we haven't been there yet, it's also very likely that most of the people actually highly revere Jesus as not just a good teacher, but actually as a prophet, a sinless messenger of God. But they vehemently, and sometimes even violently, deny that he is God. So brothers and sisters, if you follow Jesus this morning, what would you do, what do you say when people challenge your belief in the divinity of Christ? Do you even know why you believe that Jesus is God? Are you convinced in your mind and in your heart of the need for all people to be reconciled to God and that Jesus said that he is the only way for that to happen? Or is Jesus just a way that happens to work for you or might work for some others, but that everyone really should find their own path because maybe ultimately all paths lead to heaven anyways? You know, this is a, a question that everyone, at least here in the United States, is faced with. Almost everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. So before we get to those questions, I wanted to spend just a couple minutes talking about what some of those popular ideas are about who Jesus said he was. So, you know, the first thing that I've heard is that um, Jesus is a myth, that he's a fictional character. Um, and that the teachings we have from Jesus as recorded in the Bible really are just the aggregation of many teachings over a period of time. 
Um, and really, I believe that, that those who hold to this particular position about Jesus really are just forced to ignore all of the biblical and non-biblical evidence, Christian, non-Christian scholars, who are pretty much in unanimous agreement that Jesus was a historical figure, as we see recorded in the Bible. Um, now, others have said that he was a political revolutionary, um, that Jesus' main purpose during his three years of ministry um, was really actually just to overthrow the Roman and Jewish governing authorities at the time. And so he was a good, maybe even a great political leader, but he certainly is not God. Now here in the United States, most people actually adhere to this third idea that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but that he is not God. There are great things that we should be learning from him, but he is not God. In fact, according to a 2020 State of Theology survey by Ligonier Ministries, 51% of Americans believe that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but that he is not God. In fact, even among Christians in that same survey, 30%, almost one-third of self-identified Christians, believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he is not God. Now, others take an additional step beyond that and say, well, Jesus maybe was a prophet, um, that he was a real man whose teachings were of God, but that he never claimed to be God himself. And it was really his followers over time who created this myth around his divinity in order to gain power and political influence. Now, this position is essentially um, the claim of the New York Times bestselling book, How Jesus Became God. And it's also essentially the claim of Muslims. In fact, worldwide, there are more adherents, there are nearly as many adherents to um, the position of Islam as there are to Christianity, and that gap is actually very quickly closing. And as I pointed out um, just a moment ago, even among Christians, many people still believe that Jesus is just one of many ways to God, but that he was not God himself. And so those who are claiming to be Christian, um, instead of relying on the divinity of Jesus, are really ultimately relying maybe on their own sentimental belief that everyone will be in, or at least everyone they care about will be in, right? Or maybe that after they've done everything they can to be as good as they possibly can, that tossing Jesus' name uh, in, the in the hat with theirs will allow them to be saved. And then finally, of course, for nearly 2,000 years, followers of the biblical Jesus have believed that Jesus is the one true God of Israel, as revealed in the Old Testament, that he came into this world um, and that he had been foretold about by Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And so with all these ideas about who other people say Jesus is, shouldn't we first stop and ask well, who did Jesus say he is? You know, it's really difficult being removed from Jesus' situation 2,000 years later, but brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Christ today, what would you say if you were in a situation, uh, maybe like me and Aaron will be in, but maybe something slightly different where someone is challenging your belief that Jesus is God, that Jesus never claimed to be God, and how would you respond when you turn to your Bible and flip through the pages of the New Testament and you realize 
Uh Uh-oh, Jesus never said the words, I am God. So these questions are soon to become a stark reality for, for me and for Aaron. But no matter who you are or what you believe right here and right now, I want to challenge and equip you over the next 20 minutes or so to think critically about who Jesus said he is based on the primary sources, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because I believe that the question, who is Jesus, is the most important question for all people in all nations for all time. And it's the most important question for you and for me this morning. But in order to start answering this question, we actually need to set ourselves aside for a few minutes because we need to remember that it's really nothing more than just modern arrogance to believe that just because Jesus never said the words, I am God, that he never made such a claim. Because that's what we would want him to say today in 21st century America. But we have to remember that Jesus didn't live in 21st century America. He lived and taught in the first century, and he spoke primarily to Jews. And the words that we have recorded in the Bible were written primarily to Jews and Gentiles living under the Roman Empire. And so their worldview, their cultural beliefs, the way that they understood the world and and ideas was different than we understand them. So who did Jesus say he is? Well, we're going to look at three specific passages this morning, and we're going to see that in these passages and many others throughout the New Testament, to those who heard Jesus, it was clear that he was claiming to be God. So if you would, turn, turn in your Bibles with me to our first passage in Matthew chapter 9, uh, and we're going to look at verses 2 through 8. And we see in this passage that some men brought to Jesus a paralyzed man lying on a mat. In Mark and Luke, we actually see that so many people had gathered in this house that um, there was no room for anyone else to fit in there, and these friends actually had to climb up to the roof and dig a hole in order to lower their friend to Jesus on the mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, "'Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven.'" And at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. So notice in verse 3 that the teachers of the law, these would be like the Pharisees and the scribes who knew the Torah, the the, um, books of the Old Testament that we call it today, um, they accused Jesus of blasphemy. Now, we don't really use this word blasphemy very often today, and when we do, it's certainly not with the same connotation as a first-century Jew, but essentially blasphemy, if you're a first-century Jewish person, um, really has to do with blaspheming the name of God, and not just any God, because remember, they lived among other nations that worshiped other idols and gods. In fact, even um, Caesar at the time called himself the son of God because his father before him had claimed to be God. But blasphemy would have been specifically defiling the name of Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. 
And so what had Jesus said that made the teachers of the law accuse him of blasphemy? Well, back in verse 2, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, we need to understand this a little bit better because that doesn't really seem like blasphemy to you and to me. But let's pause and think a little bit about the idea of sins and forgiveness. Because let's say that I were to offend you by the things that I say or something I did, maybe I take something that belongs to you. As the offended person, you're the only one who has the right to forgive me. There may be other authorities involved who might be able to dole out consequences or judgment, but forgiveness, we know, is much more than just consequences and judgment. Forgiveness is about the healing of a relationship. When I offend you, it is your prerogative and only your prerogative to forgive me for that offense against you and begin the process of healing that relationship. And to a first century Jew, that's the perspective they might have been coming at this from. Because when we turn back to the Old Testament and look at Psalm 51, we see in this Psalm of Repentance, when King David um, was repenting of his sin, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And not only that, had then proceeded to have her husband murdered so that he could make her his wife. David pens this psalm to share and show us something about God's character and the nature of forgiveness. And he says, For my, I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And so obviously, David's actions and his sin had earthly consequences to his relationships. But what we see about the character of God and the nature of sin is that ultimately all sin is an offense against God. And that is why the teachers of the law were accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Because by saying your sins are forgiven to this man who it seems like Jesus had probably never met before, Jesus is claiming the right and the authority to forgive sins. And so the first point that I want you to take away from this passage in Matthew, um, when we look at verse 6, is that Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And we're going to actually come back to this title, Son of Man, but just know that this was actually Jesus' preferred title for himself throughout his ministry. Um, so Jesus says to the teachers of the law who are accusing him of blasphemy that What's easier, right, to say that I forgive you of your sins for which there is no visible proof, or to say get up and walk, at which the people who are packed into this house are going to expect either that the man get up and walk or that Jesus is a liar, right? And so Jesus gives the people a visible sign of his claim to forgive the man of his sins and says, not only are your sins forgiven, but now so that everyone and you would know that my words are true, I want you to get up and walk. And he walked. And so if we look back at, again, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter um, 43, you don't necessarily need to turn there. We'll be here just real quickly. Um, we're reminded again of the God of Israel, Yahweh, who says, 
I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. So the point that we learn from this interaction in Matthew chapter 9 is that Jesus said that he is the one who has the right and the power to forgive sins, and then he proved it. Now, the second passage that we want to look at today is going to be a passage from John chapter 8. And again, we see another interaction where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And in verse 53 of John chapter 8, the Pharisees, in response to Jesus saying that whoever believes in me will never pass away, the Pharisees of the law, again, the teachers of the Torah, are saying to Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the, the Pharisees question Jesus, and they, they ask him this question, who do you think you are, which is the same question that is before you and me this morning. Who do you think you are? And in response, Jesus says, my father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. So again, remember, we're starting to think this morning from the perspective of a first century Jew, and we, when we think about the glory of God, um, we, might, we might have thought back to a passage, again, from um, Isaiah, uh, chapter 42, verse 8, where Yahweh um, says, I am the Lord. This is the God of Israel speaking. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. So it would have been unthinkable as a first century Jew hearing Jesus to, to, to claim that God would give him glory. Of course, the nations around Israel, even today, um, around us, and even this morning from you and from me, we yield our glory. We give glory to all sorts of gods and idols. Yeah, we may not necessarily bow down to idols of wood and stone and metal anymore um, or as often, but we yield glory to our money and our jobs and our family. But what Isaiah is teaching us in this prophet, it prophecy is that God is not like you and me. He cannot yield his glory to another because to yield his glory to another is to elevate that other to his status, and that just cannot happen. And so let's turn back to John and continue just a little bit further in this passage. As, it, as the Pharisees respond, they say, you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. Remember, Jesus had just said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. This is a little bit of a weird statement from Jesus, right? It seems like he trailed off or forgot to end his sentence, or at least that he doesn't even understand how tenses work, right? Because what we would expect him to say is, before Abraham was born, I was something. I was God, right? Jesus, this is your opportunity. 
But he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And notice the response from the Pharisees and the people. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And so stoning, of course, doesn't really happen, at least not in the United States today. But stoning, remember, was the prescribed punishment for actually several offenses, um, according to the Old Testament. It would have been the offense for, um, for being caught in the act of adultery, for example. But Jesus clearly had not been caught in the act of adultery. So what had Jesus said that was worthy of being stoned? Well, if you're a first century Jew, this statement, I am, would have clearly brought, back, brought you back to Exodus chapter 3, one of the most memorable stories for all of Israel. Because remember, we know this story too. Jesus spoke to Moses in a burning bush and wanted Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him, command him to let the Israelites go because they had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. And this is when they go and cross through the the Red Sea on dry ground. But before that, God appears to Moses and Moses responds as I probably would have. Are you kidding me? You want me, a shepherd, to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in the world, and demand that he set the slaves free. And by the way, this is probably going to lead to my death, right? Who am I supposed to say sent me with this message? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And this is so important because this This word, this phrase that we have translated, I am, can also be translated, I will be. And and as a first century Jew, you would have understood that this had the connotation of I will be, that I am the pre-existent God, the one who was and who is and who is to come, who does not rely on creation for his own existence, but instead has created everything in the universe, including time itself, and therefore is apart from creation. But Moses can't go to Pharaoh and the Israelites and say, I am, because he's not God, right? That doesn't make sense for Moses to say that. So God goes on to tell Moses, God also said to Moses, this is what you're to say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And so notice in your Bible, regardless of what translation you're in, it's most likely written, the Lord, in all capital letters. And this is is how English translations have decided to identify this name, the Lord, which could be translated as he will be. This is the name of Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. He will be the God of your fathers. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so when you see this name, the Lord, in all caps, this is the name of Yahweh. It was such an important name and is still such an important name to Jews that even today, twice a day, morning and evening, they recite as part of their prayers the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 64, a reminder that here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, they might not say Yahweh because that would be blasphemy to them, but they know that the Lord is one. 
And so for Jesus to claim this title, not he will be, but I am, is Jesus unequivocally associating himself with the God of Exodus who led the Israelites through the Red Sea. And so the second thing that we should learn today from this passage in John is that Jesus receives glory from the one God of Israel because he is I am. Well, I know we've gone through already a lot of passages in the Bible. We're going to look at one more this morning, and if there's one passage that, you, that sticks with you this morning, I think it should be this next one, because to me, this next passage is the clearest picture of Jesus claiming to be God and those around him recognizing that that is exactly what he was saying. So turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 61 to 64. And um, again, you may be familiar with this scene because this is where Jesus is standing trial before the Sanhedrin, the leaders of, of Israel, the leaders of the Jews. And this is the night before he is crucified. They had been throwing out false accusations and asking questions of Jesus, who are you, right? And in verse 61, we're reminded that up until now, Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. So notice in verse 64, it's no longer an accusation of blasphemy. This is a condemnation of guilt. You have heard the blasphemy, and they all, all of the leaders of Israel, condemned him as worthy of death because of the blasphemy. So let's look at what Jesus said. Jesus responds to this question, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And he says, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. So again, as we saw back in our passage in Matthew, we see this title, the Son of Man, that Jesus used as his preferred title for himself. So to understand this title, Son of Man, turn with me to the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. And in Daniel chapter 7, we get a picture of this vision which Daniel recorded for us. And in verse 13, he records, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. So here you see that term again, son of man. But this term son of man also Um, could be used and was used many times in the Old Testament just to mean a human being, a son of Adam. In fact, in the prophet Ezekiel, it's used over and over again to refer to Ezekiel as just a human being. So how do we know that Jesus was not actually just telling us over and over and over again when he used this title, Son of Man, look, I'm a human being. Don't worship me. I am not God. I'm just here to teach you about the real God. But no, Daniel records that this wasn't a son of man. This is one like a son of man. There's something different about him. What's different about this one who is like a son of man? 
Well, as we continue in the passage, we see that this one is coming with the clouds of heaven. You might think of this, this phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven, sort of like God's own personal vehicle, right? His customized Lamborghini or Ferrari or Tesla, what have you. This was the vehicle of God. This was how God traveled. And he approached the Ancient of Days, just an, another name that is used for Yahweh in order that Jews wouldn't actually say the name of Yahweh. And this one who is like a son of man was led into his presence. I think this is so critical to the understanding of this passage because, remember, the presence of God was so holy to Jews. They understood this. That's why, because the presence of God as a human being, to stand in that presence meant certain death because God's presence is holy and righteous and we are not. We sin big and small all the time, but God is perfect. And so to come into his presence was death. That's why we have the tabernacle. That's why we have Solomon's temple built in Jerusalem and later the second temple that was rebuilt and was standing during Jesus's ministry here on earth. This gave us a picture of the holy of holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle, in the temple where the presence of God resided and the presence of God intersected with our world. But no human being could go into that presence except the high priest under very specific circumstances as laid out by God. But this one who is like a son of man not only is led into his presence and isn't immediately killed, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion, his governing power, his authority is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All of these attributes being ascribed to this one who is like a son of man, but these attributes belong only to the one true God of Israel, the God of creation, Yahweh. And so as we continue looking at what we're supposed to learn from this, you might ask, hang on a second, we're talking about one passage in Daniel where we have one like a son of man. How do we know that this is the passage Jesus is referring to when he calls himself the son of man? And the reason we know that is because Jesus himself defined for us what he meant when he used that title for himself. Let's turn back to the book of Mark. We're going to look quickly at chapter 13. We're not going to hang out here, but you'll notice that Jesus, talking about himself and the, and the Messiah, says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So you see the same imagery in, in Mark chapter 13 and from Jesus himself referring back to Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus is not calling himself a mere human being or son of Adam. He is calling himself the son of man. And what I want us to learn from this passage is that Jesus is the son of man who rules with the glory and power of Yahweh. So from the perspective of a first century Jew, when you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
and you think about what it would have been like if I were in his presence at that time, it would have been crystal clear what Jesus said about himself. And Jesus said, he is not just good, he is God. Jesus is not just good, he is God. So what, you might be asking? What if I do believe and have been convinced that Jesus claimed to be God? A lot of people claim to be God, right? A lot of people have a God complex, even in our nation today, right? I don't think we should believe everyone that claims to be God. In fact, I think it's a good idea to believe that most people who claim to be God are either arrogant liars or raving lunatics, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. So what's different about Jesus' claim? Well, what's different about Jesus is not only did he say that he is God, he proved it. Because just like we saw in the passage from Matthew, Jesus knew that the people around him who heard his ministry would want and desire a visible sign of this claim that otherwise cannot really be proven, at least not on this side of heaven. And he knew that that's a proof that you and I would want, even today, 2,000 years later. And so three times in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus telling us what that visible sign will be. And he predicts that he will suffer at the hands of the authorities. He will be beaten and abused for no reason. That he will be crucified and hung on a cross and die the most excruciating death known to man. And that three days later, he would rise from the grave in order to prove his power over sin and death. Yes, he did that. But also to give you and me a visible sign that his words are to be believed. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you this morning, if you follow Jesus, to know and to love this doctrine. Yes, it's a doctrine, but it's not some boring old theology that we recite only when we're in church but it's something that we need to live by, something that needs to become part of our life, the north star of our life, so that we can respond to those around us who say that Jesus is anything less than God. Because to deny that Jesus is God is to undercut his sacrifice on the cross, because as we saw in Matthew, who but God alone has the right to forgive us for our sins? To deny that Jesus is God is to deny the very words of our Savior. And to deny sharing this truth with your loved ones, with your friends, even with your coworkers and your neighbors, is to leave them for dead in their sins. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, is that loving? Just because it might be an uncomfortable conversation? You know, as I was preparing for this message, I came across a poem that I wanted to share with you this morning by John Newton. And many of you may be familiar with John Newton's other slightly more famous work, Amazing Grace, right? one of the most famous hymns of all time. But in this poem, What Think Ye of Christ, I think John Newton just so vividly portrays the importance 
of thinking rightly about Jesus Christ. And he writes, What think you of Christ is the test. To try both your state and your scheme, you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you and mercy or wrath are your lot. Some take him a creature to be, a man or an angel at most. Sure, these have not feelings like me, nor know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I. I durst not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I were sure he is God. Some call him a savior in word, but mix their own words with his plan and hope he his help will afford. When they have done all that they can, if doings prove rather too light, a little they own, they may fail. They purpose to make up full weight by casting his name in the scale. Some style him the pearl of great price and say he's the fountain of joys, yet feed upon folly and vice and cleave to the world and its toys, like Judas, the Savior they kiss, and while they salute him, betray. Ah, what will profession like this avail in his terrible day? If asked, what of Jesus I think, though still my best thoughts are but poor, I say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my savior from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all. So some of you may be here with us this morning or joining us online today or later this week, and maybe you're not convinced that Jesus claimed to be God. And if this has been an intellectual barrier for you, then I encourage you to exercise your God-given intellect and investigate the evidence, not just for the divinity of Christ, but also for his death and resurrection, because on these three pillars stand the truth about who Jesus claimed to be. And when you're done investigating that evidence, it's still going to require an act of faith to trust in Jesus because there is no purely intellectual route to God or away from him. No one can give you tangible proof about the exclusive claims of Jesus, just as you cannot provide tangible proof to the contrary. But I promise you that if you sincerely study the evidence and seek the most likely verdict, the verdict that makes the co most coherent sense of all of the evidence about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, then God will be faithful and he will open your eyes and your heart to a restored relationship with him and transform your life, offering you forgiveness from sin, yes, but so much more than that, an eternal life in which he will ultimately glorify us and you will rule with him as kings and queens. And maybe you're with us this morning and for the first time in your life, you do believe that Jesus is God. And you believe that Jesus did die for your sins and for the sins of the world. And that three days later, he rose from that grave 
in order to prove his power over sin and death, and in order to invite you into a restored relationship with him through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's you this morning, then I invite you to say this prayer with me. Now this prayer, there's nothing special about it. It's not magical. But it's a confession that you believe that Jesus is Lord. And so, dear God, thank you for loving me. I am a sinner. I have not honored Jesus as Lord. I have put myself and the things of this world in your rightful place. I need a Savior. Forgive me. Save me. I declare now that Jesus is Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to follow you and serve you with joy for the rest of my days. Amen. So if you said that prayer for the first time this morning, um, I want you to tell someone about it. Turn to your neighbor, turn to whoever is sitting in the room with you or if you're at home, or reach out to uh, arisedenver.com slash follow because we want to celebrate with you. Celebrate this journey that you are now participating in to be sanctified and made holy and made righteous with God. So would the rest of you please pray with me as we sing a new song today, recognizing that Jesus is the King of Kings. Heavenly Father, we are in awe that you would not just send a messenger to tell us and to show us that you love us, but that you came yourself to show us that love. Father, help us to love the idea, the truth that your Son, Jesus Christ, is God and that through him we have been reconciled to you. Father, I pray that this truth would permeate our lives, that we would share this truth with those in our lives, our mom or dad, sister or brother, friends, neighbors, that more and more people would be brought into that healed relationship with you. We thank you for extending forgiveness to us. We pray all this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.